Hello. Mr. Roderick, how are you today? Hi, Dan Benjamin. How's everything going? Oh, things are going just splendidly. It's it's pouring down rain here, and I'm enjoying a fresh cup of coffee in a dirty cup. My uh, my <laughs> my new specialty. That's not a thing I I would have done before. I would have required a fresh cup. Hmm. But now standards have fallen so far so fast <laughs> that I looked at this dirty cup today, and I was like, "Well, it's only dirty for me. It's not like anybody else dirtied it. It's just my it's just my dirt." Do you have like a sink in there? You could. This is the thing. No sink in here. Yeah. We don't have a sink in here either. Yeah. I have to go down the hall and use one of those big industrial sinks where people like rinse off calves (laughs) or whatever they do in those things. (laughs) Right. Isn't that what you do? You take your. Yeah. I think that's what you do. You take a little calf in there and give them a bath. (laughs) Calf bath. You know, the only thing we have here in our, in our last office, we had a little sink that was just for us to use. Uh, just for you to pee in, yeah, in the middle just, of the night. Yeah, You're not just kidding me. No. And then we, we now in our new one, all we have is the common restroom for the floor. So needless to say, I bring my mugs home to wash them now. And I have, I'm increasing my carbon footprint by, uh, by using these disposable cups sometimes here. Oh yeah. 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 I find that, uh, I feel guilt indefensible, but yes, <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Because for you, a, a dirty coffee cup would be like, that's just, no, you'd rather go without coffee. You know, and I don't, I'm trying, I was trying to, th- I was thinking about this just the other day and I wasn't sure when this actually like changed. When did this change? Because I remember very vividly in the early part of my career as a corporate stooge that I would, I would come in to the office and I would, uh, I would, I had a mug and I used the same mug. I don't, I mean, I'm sure I washed it somewhere, somehow. <laughs> but, but it was I, your mug it was my mug it was mug singular and i don't know i don't think that thing ever really got clean and i remember <laughs> you know you'd you'd forget about it and you come back on a monday and it'd have that little thick smudge of coffee at the bottom with the little white circle of mold or whatever grows in there you know what i'm talking about that's what i am i'm drinking it right now oh oh mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. Yep, you're soaking in it. <laughs> uh, you know, I I collect uh, old, um, uh, well, let's call them vintage, but old '70s sort of enameled coffee cups with various truck stops and and uh, orca whales and oh yeah, you know, various uh, uh, sort of emblems of the '70s uh, fern bar culture. And so I have a, it's, this is the, this is the too many socks problem. Mm -hmm. I have so many mugs that I can just, I can go two weeks and use a fresh mug every day and just never wash them. And so my sink at home just, it turns into this like Uh. coffee mug burial ground. (laughs) And then I have to do like a a whole (laughs) dishwasher load where it's just mugs. It's really, uh, luxurious. (laughs) Well, it's so easy because you know you can just open up the cabinet and there's another one right there. There's, like, another, there's a little mug with the with the logo of the sheriff's department of <laughs> of uh, some random county in the south. You know, I remember when I was uh, in college, we had we finally get you know like like it was the it was the point in college where you're not in the dorm anymore and you're now in the uh, you're 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 in a, a crappy apartment. Yeah. Right, ne- right next door to the dorm. Yeah, you're considered an adult enough that you you don't need a TA or an RA. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
And uh, I remember, like, I, I know I had more, but I had a system down where all I had was I had one plate, one bowl, knife, fork, mug, glass, and that was it. And I, I washed, I used them, and at the end of the day, I would wash them, and they'd be ready there the next day, and that was it. You were a real ascetic. I was, yeah. And I think the only thing that I, I bought at the grocery store, I had Wonder Bread, peanut butter, the Kraft macaroni and cheese in the box, you know, the, with the powder. Cool. Oh, you don't have to tell me. And the, and hot dogs. I think that's all oh, I ate. Oh, hot dogs, yeah. yes. That's all I ate. That was college. Did you ever, did you ever try boil in a bag Salisbury steaks? <laughs> oh, I, no. I lived on those for years. <laughs> did you ever have steakums? No, no, no. I, w- I don't. I don't know. I, that seemed like a dog treat. Okay. So I grew, you know, you, you know that I grew up in Philadelphia. Yeah. And in Philadelphia, we have, you're not going to, you said enough bad things about the fluffernutter. I'm afraid to talk to you about a cheesesteak, but. Oh, no, no, no. I'll eat the shit out of a cheesesteak. Oh, that's okay. Fact, I make special trips to Gino's when I'm there. And oh. then I go, then I go across the street and I have the other one. <laughs> the other one, D- yeah. From whatever, Dino's or whatever. <laughs> whatever they are. And, uh, and sometimes I go, sometimes I get one of each from the shop sometimes i just go to gino's because i like hearing the firemen argue with the police officers there at the counter <laughs> uh <laughs> so no i love cheesesteaks cheesesteaks are one of my top top foods okay all right so i, I in in my quest in my never ending quest to recreate uh you know my my philadelphian upbringing when i lived in south florida i mean we had good bagels there Mm-hmm. But I, my mom, at one point brought steakums. She's like, "Look, you can, you, we can try to make you a, che- a cheesesteak like back home with steakums. With steakums, steakums are little. I mean, just by the name, <laughs> they seem like this isn't a steak. This is a steakum, which is like a little. It's like the size of a dog treat, right? You would throw it up in the no, air, and, no. and Scooby Doo would be like, <laughs> no, a steakums are a very weird thing. They're they're, they are, uh, ostensibly, they are steak. They're certainly some kind of a beef. And they're thin. Steak. Yes. They're th- they could be horse. They're probably horse. Oh, no. They're the, the thickness of like a slice of turkey or, or ham that you might get in the little package. I see. But they're fro- they come frozen in little blocks. And in between each steakum. There's one of that sort of thin wax paper. You know oh, what I'm talking about? A little yeah, wax, okay. wax paper. All right. So they're like a little, they're just like sliced deli meat with their own individual. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. And I'm, so I don't usually do this. You're Googling it, aren't you? Yeah. When, when Merlin talks to me about stuff I don't know, or when you talk to me about stuff I don't know, I don't Google it. I don't care. No. But I was <laughs> curious enough about Steakums <laughs> to Google it, and they're made in Redding, Pennsylvania. Oh, so the little a little legitimacy added. To uh-huh. they're, they're, they are a Pennsylvania, oh, and, it's, and they are used throughout the United States for making homemade Philadelphia style cheese steak. Right, right. I see steak. <laughs> oh, so the uh, it's not a steak. I'm like, here you go. Hey, hey, sit, sit. But no, it's actually no. it's actually two M's. Steak. Um. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and they're oh fig- wait, Dan. <laughs> there's more. It was invented by the same guy who invented popcorn chicken. Really? Yes. Yes. He is a food scientist. Oh my god. Okay. Well, I didn't. I had no idea. Yeah. 
and his name is Gagliardi. <laughs> Eugene Gagliardi. I'm not sure Eugene is an Italian name. Wouldn't it be? <laughs> But Gagliardi it's a, is. It's a second generation American Italian name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. sort of cr- you get these and you kind of crumble them into a pan. You kind of have to crumble them because as you separate them from one another in the as you're as you are separating them with the wax paper, they have a tendency to sort of break, and I, they might even be scored in one way or another. They might even be scored a little bit. Let me let me go a little deeper into this, okay? okay. According to inventor Gene, <laughs> Gene, now, oh, I see. Eugene goes by Gene. Uh, later on down the Wikipedia article, he's credited as Gene. According to inventor Gene Gagliardi, Steakum was created after putting beef through a grinder multiple times, <laughs> mixing and molding it, freezing it, softening it, then ultimately slicing, slicing it. In a 2012 <laughs> lawsuit... Judge Lawrence Stengel described the product as chopped and formed emulsified meat product that is comprised of beef trimmings left over after an animal is slaughtered and all of the primary cuts (laughs) are removed. The emulsified meat is pressed into a loaf and sliced, (laughs) frozen, and packaged. So I think it is the very definition of processed meat. Yes. I think when they were talking about pink slime, pink slime was a a higher grade (laughs) of beef product than than this which is made it put through a grinder multiple times mixed and molded frozen softened <laughs> sliced turned into a loaf <clears throat> emulsified sliced again frozen again and packaged okay well thank you for <laughs> ru- yet again ruining another one of my childhood is this there. what fluffer nutters are like no no, no. Do, i promise you do? no i promise you no uh, so I enjoyed these things, and okay. what what I would do is I would crumble them into the pan. They didn't. They don't need butter or anything. You know, no. they're just plenty of oil in, right there. In fact, it sounds like they are pre digested for you. <laughs> <laughs> Your body doesn't even have to process them at all. No, I mean that's we vitamins got, go right in. Yeah, we've got you know much less time in Philadelphia. You're on the go, <laughs> so I would make these, and then she even would get me these sort of hoagie rolls type hoagie type rolls and i would put it right in there put some uh, cheese ideally you would have the also processed cheese in a can that's the ideal one to use put that on there and then you'd have a bona fide steak sandwich did it taste how how close did it take to a gino's sub nothing like nothing like a gino it's as much like that as like i guess if gosh i'm trying to draw an analogy here let's just say it didn't it didn't taste like that it was it was more like that than a hamburger was like uh-huh. that, but uh-huh. like you can get, you know, the, one of the worst steak sandwiches that you get in the Philadelphia area is still so much better than, yeah, 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 than yeah. this, but they, no, we was, it was in Delray beach or, you know, Boca. It was fine. Like that, that was fine. Sure. It's like getting an American style hamburger in the Ukraine. Yeah. I can't. Right. Yeah. Where you're like, Oh, it's an American restaurant. I'm going to go in there. And then the hamburger comes and you're like, what in the living hell is this thing? Do you think that's how people feel uh, who are visiting the United States if they're foolish enough to try and eat at a so-called ethnic restaurant outside of New York City that that that's like what they're like, oh, uh, let's get some bratwurst. And they try it and they're like, wow, this is what America thinks a bratwurst is. I don't think it's as bad because America is a country made up of immigrants. Right. So there are enough Germans here that if somebody was selling German style bratwurst and it was bad. Yeah. 
the Germans would protest, right? I mean, the Thai food in Seattle, which is, I think, the best Thai food in America, mm. is not like Thai food in Thailand, but it is not so far away that it would be unrecognizable. All right. So when I was in Ethiopia recently, the first thing I did when I got to the hotel was say, I want real Ethiopian food. And they were like, well, and they did that thing where they're like, oh, that's just, you know, that's kind of just normal food for us. We've got American style hamburgers here for you. <laughs> and I saw so well, welcome. Yeah. So I called down to room service and I was like, just send me the food that you guys are eating in the kitchen. Like, oh. I just want Ethiopian food. And the guy was like, really? Okay. And up came a big tray with, you know, five kinds of tibs. And they're in Yera bread. And it was spectacular. Mm. But it was, and it, it absolutely looked like Ethiopian food here, but it was greasier mm. and spicier. And it was just, it was fucking dynamite. <laughs> and I, under, I understand that the Ethiopian food here in Seattle is just slightly different ingredients that they can get. And they make it a little bit, maybe less oily for for restaurant consumers, it's kind of like the it's like the uh, the curry that you get the like Indian curry you get in in London, right? Okay, sure. So yeah, I think, but I think in America, I mean, there are definitely places where you get Mexican food and it is just an excuse to melt government cheese <laughs> on some refried beans. <laughs> where that I don't know anywhere in Mexico where it's served like that. We would like to say thanks very much to our sponsor. It's Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. JohnRoderick.com exists on Squarespace, as does a couple of my sites like BaconMethod.com, PodcastMethod.co. It is really the best way to create a website in 2016 and beyond. You know, Squarespace had existed like years ago. I never would have been able to get a job designing and building stuff for the web because like that's what I used to do. I used to build publishing tools that let people do what Squarespace does like in its sleep. Sites look professionally designed. It doesn't matter what your skill level is. You don't need to know any code. You don't need to know any HTML. You don't need to know any CSS. You can start with one of their amazing templates and just simply by tweaking some dials and clicking some buttons, you can create and completely customize your website no two sites have to look alike. I mean, even if you're starting with the same template as somebody else, you're going to wind up with a site that is completely yours, that works the way that you want it to work. And it doesn't matter what you want to do. If you want to sell something, they got e-commerce. You want to, uh, you're a band, you want to put your, your music online, they've got that. You want to host a podcast, they've got that too. Really, pretty much anything that you want to do, from blogging to launching your iOS app uh, to, to selling stuff, they have built a solution into Squarespace for you, and it's super easy to use, and it's it's just great. You can go check them out. They made a special URL to support this show, squarespace.com slash roadwork. Just going to squarespace.com slash roadwork supports this show. But while you're there, check it out. Check out what they have to offer. You might just find that it is the perfect solution for the next site that you want to build or that your friend wants to build. And they have an offer code. The code is ROADWORK, one word, ROADWORK, and that'll give you 10% off your first purchase. So again, squarespace.com slash ROADWORK to support the show. When you're there, sign up, use the code ROADWORK to get 10% off your first purchase. Thank you to Squarespace 
for supporting 5 by 5 and Roadwork. Let's it, well, it, I I love I love other countries ideas or interpretations about different different countries foods. Like I remember when I went to South Korea and this was maybe like 2000, 99, 2000. Those were early days. Those were the early days for South Korea. Yeah, right. And just, just right after, right after the war, pretty much. <laughs> Basically the same, same weekend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I remember a lot of what they, the sort of traditional foods that, that South Koreans eat uh, are wonderful. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of Korean food. I, I love it. Yeah. And my wife is half Korean. So through her family, especially her mom, I just got to try pretty much everything on the menu in Korean, Korean dishes. And her mom could make it just like they did. So when I, when I went there, I was like, oh yeah, I've, I've had this and wow, this is great, you know? But the, what I didn't realize is that they eat some of these core foods. They eat uh, many times, multiple times a day. So the things that we think of as like a breakfast food, that might be very similar for them as like, it might be the same thing they eat at lunch or dinner. So like a lot of the time in the morning for breakfast, it would be like rice with vegetables, bulgogi, and maybe like this sort of oyster soup. And Uh (laughs) that's, that ain't what I want for breakfast, especially not in 2000 when I was, I won't say, I mean, I certainly was more closed minded then than I, than I am now, but it was, you know, I had much more regiments around me Uh and, uh, and, and so like, I, you know, I wanted like a bowl of cereal or a piece of toast or some eggs. You know what I mean? Like, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was there for like two weeks and we were staying with family. So we were sleeping like on the floor, the way the Koreans slept on the floor and we would eat, you know, sitting down on the ground in these cute little tables. It was great fun. But like after like, I don't know, I guess about 11 days, I was like, I just want like a piece of toast now. You know, I've had enough of this oyster soup at six in the morning. I've had enough bulgogi three times a day. I don't want, you know, anything pickled for lunch, you know? Right, right. You wanted some, what you consider to be the, just the normal food. breakfast food, which yeah. is a, which is the ovum of a prehistoric <laughs> uh, ground bird. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and some sliced and burned bread well, it, with the, with the, with the lard <laughs> skimmed off the top of right. the milk of a domesticated bovine. In other words, regular breakfast, regular, normal breakfast that everyone should eat. Yeah. And- my, my sister went to live in <laughs> Nepal for a while. She lived there for a year. And, uh, you know, when you, when you have Dalbot here in the States, oh, it's like, oh, Dalbot, that's, yeah, great. That's amazing. Like, I'm a vegetarian or whatever. I have some Dalbot. And then I go to the store and I buy some uh, some steakums that are made of uh, of wheat germ. And I I go to Taco Bell and I get a bean burrito or whatever. Yeah. Whatever vegetarians do, I have no idea. Right. But Susan uh, reported from Nepal that they eat Dalbot uh, for every meal every day. And sometimes they have Dalbot with something on it but not very often it's just it is just the staple food okay and she i don't think liked dalbot to begin with <laughs> so after six months of being served oh. because she was living up in the hills right so there she couldn't go to a chinese restaurant oh, right and it was just like dalbot 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 <laughs> and she lo- kind of lost her mind um because we're we're not used to 
having any limitations on the food we can get. You know, the amount of the number of conversations I have in Seattle and the hours and hours and hours of my life that I have expended saying, where are we going to eat? Uh, I don't know. Right. What about what too about many the, choices? Yeah. What about that new place that's called like dirt and olives? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about dirt and olives. What about what about you know the that place over on the other side of town called deer antler and you know and donkey hoof? No, that doesn't sound you know. And just like back and forth. What about the one that we usually go to? I don't want to go to that anymore. And it's just like wow. It's not even a question of being spoiled. It's a question of. How could you arrive at a place where all of the food of the world is laid at your feet and you can't, it's not that you cannot choose. It's that none of it sounds good. Yeah. It all sounds terrible. Too pedestrian. Oh, can I not just have ice cream for breakfast and, (laughs) and then just like bacon for lunch and then frankly, a boil in a bag Salisbury steak. for Oh man. Well, they were so sweet, though. I guess most only one of them could speak English, and that was the the colonel. And the colonel was a retired colonel in the South Korean Army who was perfectly fluent mm-hmm. in English. Had been to the United States multiple times, very very well educated. And I guess at some point, you know, we were chatting about this. So then, I guess a, a day or so later, as a surprise for me. Oh, I like the way this is going. It was actually really sweet. Um, They went and got me what was their interpretation of a loaf of bread, which it was bread, but it was more like a, what we would call here, almost like a pastry. It was like a sweet, a Hmm. sweet bread that was more like a, like if you could imagine like a challah with, uh, that was sweet. Hmm. And was it was it made of ground up cricket? No, no, it was full on bread, and uh, and they took it, and they this was the amazing part. Somehow they cut it almost like a like a flower, like a blossom in some way, so that it almost fanned fanned uh-huh. out, uh-huh. and they had clearly put the whole thing fanned out like that, all but still connected at the bottom, so it it looked like a almost an armadillo or something, and they put the whole thing into. Uh, the oven to toast it. Right. And so when I sat down, like everyone else has their oyster soup and their, you know, their bowl <laughs> of rice and there was nothing there. And they bring this thing out and they set it in front of me. I couldn't <laughs> believe it because like, mm-hmm. I didn't care what kind of bread it was. It was bread. I ate the whole loaf of bread. Sure. <laughs> and I think they even had gotten some, some kind of butter because I think there's a lot of lactose intolerance in, in South Korea. They're, they don't use dairy. There's no milk. There's no creamer. There's no butter. Uh, right. And we stayed with like two or three different families, and none of them had any of this. So, but I was so excited to get my, my loaf of bread that it, it they made the rest of the trip eating the Korean food for just, just fine. You know, you've just, you've just given me a thought technology. When I go to <laughs> Korea, and, I'm, and, I, have, and I, have a, I have it planned. A, a trip? That I'm that I want to go to Korea sometime sometime this year. There's a big there's a big security conference, big oh, internet security conference really? in Seoul that I that I've been meaning to attend. That's your thing. And when I go, I'm going to strap a giant bladder of half and half uh-huh. to my body, so that when I get there, I can have cream in my coffee. I find it intolerable not to have a little, just not even not even a whole one of those little those little ramekins but just a little splash just a tiny little bit of cream and i don't want the powdered kind no i want it to be in a liquid form even if it is 
reconstituted, frozen, and sliced. Mm. I want it to be like, I want to pour a little cream into my coffee. It's just part of the ritual. So if they don't have that in Korea, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to devise some sort of bladder to carry with me well, full of American, like a, like a pig's bladder. Yeah. Just <laughs> they may, strapped around my West, a, 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 a boat, bag. They may have it now. This was, you know, this was a good 15 or so years ago, but the, as far as coffee, like that was the time when I was really into my, that was my very much my fancy coffee stage where I was buying fresh beans and experimenting with roasting them like in my own house and, and then, uh, and then like grinding them myself and turning my nose up at anything that hadn't been ground five seconds before it was, you know, pressed properly. And, and so I went over there and I, I had, you know, I didn't even think about what kind of coffee they would have at the, again, this is 15 years ago. It might be the same. All they had was instant coffee. Sure. That's it. All uh, around the world. Really? It. Is that yeah. true? Yeah, yeah, instant coffee. I mean, instant coffee used to be all we had in America. Um, You're talking but, about the 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 like just add water kind of stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, Nescafe. Yeah. Uh, in, I mean, obviously in Italy, you go sit at a sidewalk cafe and a, someone in a white shirt with a black bow tie comes over and serves you the greatest coffee you've ever had, and that's <laughs> true in Spain too, but. In Germany, they are not above serving you hot water and a little packet of Nescafe. They don't even assemble it for you. Really? And so I got in the habit of just grabbing a handful of these Nescafes out of the basket at the hotel and just keeping them in my pocket. And whenever I wanted a cup of coffee, I'd go get a little hot water and throw the throw the packet. I, I grew to uh, I grew to really like it. It's not coffee by by any standard that we have here but it is a coffee flavored beverage that's the thing that really freaked me out is that by the end of the trip i was fully hooked on this stuff yeah yeah like it was a problem like as soon as i got home i'm like i I gotta go get me some maxim yeah you know you're, you're singing my song now yeah and and they would add they would put a ton of sugar in it and they would put this uh non dairy creamer powder in it it was i mean it was a beverage that hinted toward coffee mm-hmm. and it certainly had caffeine and sugar in it but part it took the, me months to wean myself back to regular coffee from that stuff part of the european culture uh, particularly in the north is it orbits around the truck stop which are hu- huge in europe on, on all of their sort of auto bonnie uh-huh. uh roads and you know we have truck stops here in the States and you go in and there is coffee brewing mm-hmm. for the most part in a giant coffee brewer. And if it's out, the cashier has to come around the counter and brew some more coffee for you. And if it's been sitting for four hours, that's what you get. Yeah. Four hour long brewed coffee. Yeah. But in, in Europe they have, because they, and again, I speak about primarily the North. They love to systematize things. And so they have, you walk into the truck stop and there are these banks of machines, these Dewey Egberts <laughs> machines where you put however many euros, I'm sure it's two euros now or more, into the slot. And then the machine, the Dewey Egberts machine, makes you some coffee out of some component parts 
and oh, it's not it's, spelled like I thought it would be. D O U W E. Yeah, Dewey, Dewey Egbert, Dewey Egbert, and uh, and the coffee comes out. You have no idea what happened in the machine. You never had to interact with a person. It's all very automat. Um, <laughs> because of course you're in a you're in a hurry, and then you go get um you go get a sausage, and uh. So a long sausage and a short bun, uh-huh. <laughs> and then you you stand in the basically stand in the gas station. You eat your long sausage on a short bun with with a lot of mustard on it. And then you get back in your Volvo truck and you keep <laughs> on driving. Um, so yeah, in that, that sense, so why do you think, John? Why in America do we turn our nose up so much at uh, instant coffee here? I don't. I if it's know. so popular in your world travels and, and mine, my limited ones, mm. why is it like, why do people think of it as, as just the worst here? I'm not sure what it is, why we insist on, on brewing coffee like we're in the break room <laughs> of an auto parts store <laughs> rather than, than do this, uh, <laughs> this whole thing where coffee becomes... Because look at Basically. the Keurig, look at the Keurig and, and the, the landfills that we've created there. And I'm, gu- I'm guilty of this as much as anyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love my Keurigs. I have yeah. two, one at home, one at work. I feel like that company should start sponsoring our whole family of podcasts because I was talking about, it, I was talking about this <laughs> last week. And uh, yeah, that's, it's a terrible, wasteful, like... Beautiful thing. <laughs> beautiful privilege product. <laughs> right. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, there are so many ways. Coffee is basically just astronaut tang, but brown. Mm-hmm. And we all just want it infused into us. Yeah. It's delicious if you have, it's like alcohol. It is delicious only if you have conditioned yourself to think it's delicious. <laughs> right? Like people say to me all the time, why don't you drink like a non-alcoholic beer? Do you drink a non-alcoholic? And I'm like, Alcohol sucks. It tastes terrible. Yeah. It's only because you have forced yourself to learn to drink it that you think it is good. And I'm talking about even the best alcohol. If you can, if you can remember You're what You're talking about like, like liquor or including wine and beer. In including that. wine. The first time you take, I mean, beer being maybe the notable exception. When you're a kid and you have your first sip of beer, <laughs> it's good, right? It tastes good. You're like, what is this? Amazing, curious taste. Uh-huh. Usually because it's cold and fizzy and it's just like, this is, it's, it's weird. I like it. But the, your first glass of wine when you're a kid, uh-huh. I don't see, I don't remember the first wine. Oh, I mean, I, I remember the first wine I had. Of course yeah. it was Banashevitz, but I don't, <laughs> I don't remember the occasion, but I'm sure that it was at a, a, a family gathering and they were all having regular wine and they would pour me out a little, like I had like a tiny, like almost like what you call like a dessert wine, sherry type glass, yeah. like a little, yeah. and they would fill that uh, Manischewitz for me. And I like that, which is basically <laughs> just grape juice. Grape juice that has been augmented with a thousand pounds of sugar. Right. Manischewitz is the most, Manischewitz has the consistency of pancake syrup. <laughs> I, but I, I haven't had it in a long time. I'm sure I'm going to get. Uh, some reader mail from people that are like, I love, I drank wine as a kid and I loved it. But your first time tasting it, it's no, it's no good. And especially like whiskey and stuff. People are like, Oh, the blah, blah, blah. I'm a connoisseur. It's like, yeah, right. You're a connoisseur. 
It's just like people that are, I mean, all the foods, basically everything that isn't foil in a bag Salisbury steak covered with processed cheese, it's all hard to take the first time. You force yourself to drink it. And coffee, you know, also. Because you think as a kid, you're like, oh, adults drink this all the time. It's going to taste like hot chocolate. Why can't I have a sip of this (laughs) good smelling hot chocolate? (laughs) And then you drink it, and it's like, why did you ruin hot chocolate? <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the first thought that you have. I didn't start regularly drinking coffee until I was 22 years old. And the only reason I did was because they put a quart of milk in it. Right. Uh, More like a cafe was, au lait. That was the heyday of the latte. Oh, yeah. Right? 1991, it was like, lattes mm-hmm. are a thing now. But I, I quickly realized that I could not drink six lattes a day. Do you, do you drink coffee every day? Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you're in Seattle. You almost, I would expect you to say yes. Oh, yes. If I don't drink coffee, by the time the afternoon rolls around, I start to get the, the early warning signs of a, of a pretty bad headache that's going oh, yeah. to come upon me. Maybe not today right it's like i can go a day without it and and maybe i won't get seized by the demon but if i go two (laughs) days without it oh the demon will have his hands on me oh yeah and then the joints start to ache and then the your muscles start to ache and then day day three or four it's an incapacitating how many how many cups or mugs of coffee do you have in a day, do you think? Never less than three. Okay. With the top end being more or less unlimited. Like I will drink oftentimes a pot of coffee. <laughs> yeah. And then I will go out and have coffee. Uh, that, uh, so if I drink a pot of coffee, I will, if I'm at lunch, then... I will not, I will refuse a cup of coffee because I will know that that will be too much. But then in the afternoon, I may start drinking it again. And then at dinner, I'll have it. And if it's, if I'm in a diner and I'm having an intense conversation with some friends, every time, uh, the server goes by, I'll be like, I'll just point at the coffee cup. I'll have, I'll have, I'll have nine cups of coffee sitting there. Does that, does it affect your sleep? I'm sure it affects every aspect of my personality. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that it is responsible for a lot of questionable decisions I've made. Uh-huh. Uh, where it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm like, I'm going to cut my hair. Oh, why am I doing this? Because I had nine cups of coffee for dinner. But uh, but every study I read says you can't drink too much coffee. It's amazing for you. And it, those are the, those, a lot of scientific studies I do not believe, but those I heartily believe. You can't have too much coffee. I totally say. agree with you. I've, I have, I, coffee is maybe my favorite thing to drink. And the, right, as of right now, I'm not having, I'm not having it. Oh, are you off the coffee? Oh, right damn. now I am. And, and, oh, intense. Yes. And in, it wasn't really an intentional thing. It kind of happened because I got, uh, I got my, my kids brought some kind of a, like a cold or something home and it, I had that and it was, then it wasn't a cold. It was like some kind of virus thing. Mm. And then 
in that process, you know, you wind up sort of sleeping and being awake at weird times and just feeling like crap. And I, I'm in, in the midst of feeling like crap from this illness that I had, I wound up just not having any coffee for like three or four days, mm. which was irregular. Normally, even when I am sick, I would have it anyway. Yeah. Just to keep, get well faster. Yeah. Cause it's like a cure all. But this time for some reason I didn't. And then when I got done with it, I was like, well, wait a second. I haven't had any coffee in a few days. I think I'm past the point where the withdrawals have happened. So I'm just going to ride this out. Like a buddy of mine went to boot camp in the Navy. And I don't know how long you're in there, but there's six weeks. I don't know what it is. Boot camp? Yeah, Navy boot camp. Yeah, I don't know. And he got out of that and he hadn't had a cigarette the whole time. And and he was he wrote me a letter. He's like, I can't wait till I'm done with this boot camp so I can have a cigarette. I'm like, yeah. well, but you essentially have gone through the hard part. Maybe yeah, maybe quit. Na- you now you would quit. Yeah. He's like, no, I don't want to quit. Anyway, he he didn't quit. But I thought maybe I this would be a chance I could experiment with not having coffee. And I I supplemented it with tea. I didn't do it cold turkey. Like I wasn't trying to do it, but like when I was sick, I kept drinking tea to help my throat and everything else. I remember I, I texted you because we were trying to record at this time and my throat, I sent my voice sounded terrible. I'm like, Hey John, what's like the industry secret for like when a singer has no voice and they're going to, they got to get it right. They got to get it right. Like with chicken fat, what do you take? And you're like, throw coat. <laughs> so that didn't help me. But, yeah, throat coat. But there is, I do have a, I do have an ancient Chinese secret. I, there is some Chinese medicine that some traveler who stayed at my house said, "Oh, you've got to try this." And <laughs> just it's this, passing through, stop this, at John's house. Yeah, and bring your some special medicine. <laughs> right. I don't remember who it was, but it's a little, it's a little syrup tincture that actually is amazing. Uh, but I couldn't find it when you asked. And so I was like, throat coat, because that's what we all actually use. But this is, <laughs> I do have some secret stuff that I will find out and tell you about. Well, for next time, I, I would love to know because yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I've, I've got to know. But the, um, I got through it and I'm like, well, wait, if all I've been drinking is tea, I'm just going to stick with tea. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what. Uh, and I've talked to our friend Merlin about this and as he's talked on back to work about different sort of ADD medicines that he has taken on and off. And, and he, he said that there's certain ones, I guess, that when when you take them, you you feel like you, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I I'm not trying to make a comparison between how I feel after a couple of cups of coffee and how somebody with with ADHD or something feels on a medication. But I, I will definitely say I. I feel like a shadow of that exists in the realm of coffee and that since I haven't had it now for a couple of weeks, I definitely see there's a, there's a different Dan who doesn't drink coffee than there is who drinks coffee. And I feel like this is sort of the more subdued version for sure. And I don't, I don't know if I like him as much, but oh. I think other, I think other people like him more. Oh, really? Subdued Dan? <laughs> yes. Well, I have used, uh, I have used being sick to quit cigarettes and to quit coffee and to basically all the things that I want to quit. Yeah. Sick is a wonderful way to do it because as you say, you're, you're already four days in and that's the worst part of it. Yeah. But I feel like tea 
obviously is a gateway drug. Yeah. And if you go off caffeine completely. No, I would. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a fool. Well, no, but here's the thing. If you do it, you, you suddenly walk into the light. It is, it's tremendous because what you realize is that your body <laughs> already has a strategy for waking up in the morning, right? Your body floods itself with, with the energy Mm-hmm. like serotonin energy or something, some kind of adrenal burst. And so <laughs> coffee is actually not necessary in the morning. It's just, it's just overloading what your body would normally do. The light, you know, the light comes up, the sun comes, I guess it's the sun. I don't mean to sound like Sarah Palin. The light comes up <laughs> over the horizon. <laughs> um, but, uh, but your body will naturally like wake itself up. And so if you go completely off caffeine, mm-hmm. you do become this otherly type of person. And, you know, I've been, I've quit caffeine and stayed off it for nine months. Oh man. And just like wake up in the morning, clear headed and really? fine. And you just motor along through the day. You don't have that afternoon crash you f- and you get to be, you get to, Adopt a posture of moral superiority to almost everyone. Oh, yeah, I want yeah, that. You're just like, oh, caffeine. give me Are that. You, you having caffeine? Oh, mm, too bad for you. I live without caffeine. <laughs> uh, and then, but it's like all that stuff. It's like the cigarettes. It's everything. Well, the one time that you go, you know what? Oh yeah, it's a special occasion, and I'm gonna have <laughs> one cigarette. It's New Year's Eve, and then. Two days later, you're back at a pack a day. Right. Oh, my God. And with caffeine, it's the same. And I feel like even decaf coffee, if you start drinking decaf, there's enough caffeine in it and it's enough of a trigger that you're, you're already headed on a path of destruction. But I absolutely feel like quitting caffeine is like a glorious, glorious thing. And I would live without it. If I didn't read all these studies that said coffee is amazing for you and it's really a health, it's really a health beverage. Yeah, no, I, I've read all of that stuff too. And I think, I think I should, like, I feel weird not drinking it. I do want to have more of it, but now I feel like I've, I've kind of taken a step on this path. Yes. And that now I need to see where it leads. I need to not, not just not have coffee, but maybe Maybe I should, you're making me think maybe I should even try not having tea in the morning too. No tea. Just go. Just do, just do your thing, man. Um, go the whole hog and become, become one of these otherly types who just, who just floats through life on a magic carpet. That's just sort of under your shoes. It's a magic carpet of normalcy. And just be like, I am just, uh, I am a human as God made me. When I first, when I first, first, first got sober. Yeah. I was walking along in my town with my dirty jeans on and my bad attitude face. And I was like, now I'm (laughs) sober. And I already felt like fuck everybody, but now I really feel like fuck everybody. Man. And, uh, you know, I was balancing a switchblade, an open switchblade on the tip of my finger and just, you know, just challenging everybody. <laughs> right. Come, come <laughs> Give at me somebody. Come on. Come at me. Come at me, fools. <laughs> and, uh, and then I had this like sudden pow where I understood that I was a natural human 
And if I had been raised and I was picturing this like verdant green sort of hobbit land (laughs) where it was a picture of utter earthly simplicity, right? There's a little house, this, these golden fields, the, some animals sort of grazing in the distance and just a few, I, I, so I, I saw this in action one time in, I was walking through a very sort of remote part of Bohemia and I'm walking along. I haven't really, there's, you know, villages in the distance, but I'm kind of all alone out here in the, in these fields. And I come upon this teenage boy. He's probably 16, 17, but he's not, he's not skinny. He's not gangly. He's like, he's, he's fully fleshed out. He's on his way to being a man (laughs) and he's handsome in a kind of just natural, again, natural way. He's obviously a farm person. And he's in this field with these two teenage girls. And they're just very casually kind of wrestling with each other and playing, but they're not children. You know, they're like, they're on the threshold of adulthood. They're certainly mature now. Okay. And they're just playing playfully with each other and very intimate, but also innocent, but also not innocent. And it was clear that the three of them had known each other since childhood. There was a familiarity that was like family, but they were also doing a sort of very, very uncomplicated dance of like mating dance right they're from here and they're probably going to stay here and they are right on the cusp of of making the next generation of people from here right and and i saw them and it was just so my heart just soared at what a beautiful thing they were Uh and what a beautiful life that represented and it reminded me of this of this flash i'd had when i was first sober that wait a minute, I was like that. I could have been a natural person, unaffected by psychology talk, unaffected by people meddling, right? unaffected by guidance counselors and educational theories and media. And who was my natural self? Who was I that had been that had been modified and constrained and, and in some ways ruined by meddling. Who, who could I have been if I had just been allowed to be? And, wow. And I was like, oh my God, like that's who I actually am. And I'm sitting here chewing on all this media and, and, all these meddling hands and I'm, I've been resisting them my whole life and I've been resenting them my whole life, but it's all I knew. So all I knew was to fight, fight, fight. But in fact, I'm, I'm inside somewhere, this simple 
person that only ever knew the sun coming up in the morning and going down at night and just sort of sort of like beauty and simplicity and love were the were things that came naturally rather than antagonism and uh, and even in that case this natural person would would approach this natural me would approach work and even strife and and combat even from that same place of like this is this is a natural extension of being alive and i've always tried to attain that but it's it's so hard to stay there when you're assailed all day i mean it's impossible to stay there when when fa- facebook is what you're oh, yeah. interacting oh, with yeah. you know and um so so i try to carry that with me and i've seen it in action and I think it's I think it's antithetical to living in cities, and maybe it's why I walked across Europe trying to get in touch with with that uh, with that person, that un that untrammeled person. But I but I didn't achieve that on my walk across Europe. I spent the entire time arguing with guidance counselors in my head. So I don't know what to do about it. Maybe maybe Buddhist meditation. And that's your cue. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you bring up a real, some really interesting points, but even in that the context of Buddhist meditation, I, I remember I was listening to, uh, there's a, a Buddhist podcast out there that I, I listened to from a, a guy who runs the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City up in San Francisco, Gil Fronstall, and he, he was talking about how often he would go on retreats and things like that. And, uh, you know, as before he was a teacher and then subsequently, and he always talks about how easy it is to get centered and feel calm and contemplative and at peace. And, you know, when you're on a retreat or when you're in a, in a monastery of some kind, or when you're in the middle of nature and no one's talking to you and you wake and sleep and, you know, think and meditate all just in a tiny little hut, you know, like it's super easy to be peaceful in that situation. It's super easy to get that kind of Buddhist detachment that, uh, that we, you know, that, that, that we all sort of strive for, but like, then you got to get back and you go home and you go to work and you walk downtown and all of these, uh, you sit in traffic and, you know, all of the real world happens. And then this person that you were when you were super, you know, super calm and at peace. Now you just want to fight people again. But I mean, did you, did you find that you found that kind of peace when you were traveling and like you could maintain it? No, 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 because my mind uh, has always been my worst enemy. I, I have not, I, you know, what's funny is that I, I don't really have a powerful super ego. You, you would, you would think that, think that I do. Um, and it, it's not, it's not that I don't have a powerful super ego plan. <laughs> um, 
but my superego functions as a committee rather than as a authoritarian voice. How so? so I mean, it- well, when, you know, when ideas, you know, when ideas and actions and, and practice desires come up from the id and the ego, then it goes to this, you know, what the superego is meant to do, you know, and again, I'm like paraphrasing Freud, who I don't even really, <laughs> I don't even 100% follow, uh-huh. but it's a, it's a good, it's a good sketch, right? A good, simple sketch. Like it, stuff comes up and the, and the superego is meant to say, like, is meant to be the, the, the conscientious voice, the one that says, here are the, here are the aspirations and plans. Here's, here's, here's how your, your, your ideas and your desires fit into the, the architecture of who, who we are and what our moral choices are going to be. Right. But when it comes to that level, I think the ideal or at least, you know, effective people have a singular voice there. That's like, here's the plan here's, and here's how I'm going to control and limit the, my desires and my, um, you know, and my ego driven behavior. And I'm going to, going to impose some limits and I'm going to guide us along a path, right? Us being all these, this multiplicity of voices in your head. Yeah. But my superego is another committee or parliament where all that stuff comes up and then gets debated exhaustively and debated a further time. And whoever the chairman of the board of that, of that uh, body, that deliberative body is, he's actually a fairly weak guide. And there are larger voices angry voices, uh, jealous voices, paranoid voices, and then manipulative voices that sort of dominate the conversation. And then the ultimate arbiter, the CEO, Mm -hmm. sort of makes decisions kind of weakly, like, well, okay, I guess, yeah, I see what you're saying. And you know what? I've got to end this debate. Like, everybody just... (laughs) Just like, all right, all right, you know, pounding the gavel on the table. And it's not really Kennedy during the Bay of Pigs where his generals are saying, we need to bomb them. And he's like, well, I don't think I I don't think we are. We're not going to do it. Everybody was telling Kennedy to bomb the Cubans. He, He stood alone, even his brother. And he stood alone. He had that. He had that that fire, and my Kennedy is really more of a George uh, W. Bush, who's being pushed around <laughs> by his underlings. Doesn't have the doesn't have the strength to to face down his more his uh, his generals and his his uh, bomb them back to the Stone Age types, his Westmoreland. So that has been lately, that has always been a problem for me because the, because, you know, he's pounding the gavel on the table and all these angry voices are are not just angry, but like all these emotional voices are 
throwing cups around and, you know, it's like the South Korean parliament, right? People are throwing fists at each other or the Ukraine. Oh, I'm sorry, not the Ukraine or Ukraine. God, I get in so much trouble for that. Oh, I remember. I remember talking about and that. And I said on. it earlier, too, about the hamburgers. Ukraine, not the Ukraine. <sighs> Man, we're going to get a lot of mail this week. To my Ukrainian listeners, that is just force of habit. It is not meant as an insult to you. I do not consider your republic to be just a portion <laughs> of the greater Rus. I know that you are a long and storied people. You know, but the people who would have cared about that, they stopped listening as soon as you just said Ukraine. Yeah, they probably did. You know what I'm saying? They They, didn't hear the apology. They threw their uh, Ukrainian... Cravats. They threw their sabers down on the floor and said, Basta, enough. I will not listen to this program anymore. Right. Because of this constant disparagement of Ukrainian people and Ukraine. It still it does. It sounds very unusual to me, even though I do not say the Spain or the France. <laughs> yeah, which is which are the examples that Ukrainian people have used to say why do you keep saying the Ukraine? It diminishes us. It's true. They're absolutely right. I I don't know. It's force of habit, a force of habit left over from the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Anyway, so I'm trying to build up, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to figure out how I can reduce the number of voices in my superego to down to maybe just a council of three, maybe just one. I'm having some good, I'm having some good luck with it. The, uh, my, my recent journey into psychopharmacology. You know, uh, f- not everybody knows about this and i don't want i don't want to make you know this a a repeat but what is it that's going on with you well i have i have allowed finally after what would it be 30 years of saying that psychiatrists like i feel like psychologists are sort of at the level of fortune tellers psychiatrists (laughs) psychiatrists <laughs> are at the level of people riding around old Western towns in a cart selling, uh, selling like Uzo uh-huh. as a cure, cure all Uzo, Uzo with <laughs> right. a little bit of cocaine in it as a cure all. <laughs> and so I've been very dismissive of the, um, even though I'm sitting here talking about Freud and analysis, but I've been very dismissive of sort of the contemporary explosion of, mental health sciences as a true science. I don't think, I think it's a, I think I have felt for a long time that it is a pseudoscience and, um, and so I don't allow it. I don't allow myself to be analyzed or, I mean, not that I'm not analyzed by all my friends and by myself all the time, but I'm not going to go sit in a psychologist's office and listen to them basically read their story problems to me and suggest that I eat less exercise and meditate. Uh-huh. Like I get that. You already knew I, that. I get that from fortune cookie. Uh, and psychiatrists even more so like, it just seems, it seems like psychiatry has, has gone away from, from like Jungian 
practice into this world where they're just like, well, we found this frog in Central America. Why don't you lick it and see if it makes you happier? (laughs) It's like, yeah, I guess that's cool. But it seems a little bit random. And I've watched a lot of my friends be medicated for various things. And other than lithium, which just seems like a salt, the rest of it, Zoloft and all that stuff, I have not seen it have a, I have seen it have effect on people, uh-huh. but not effect that I felt like was very beneficial. And I, I maybe I'm going to get a lot of letters about this too from all of our psychologist listeners or people who have had very positive experiences with Zoloft. And I would challenge you to, if you are going to write me about this, to bear in mind how much I don't care. But also, I'm, in, I'm interested in your story, for sure, but don't lecture me. About it. I've been lectured by the best. And I've also had friends commit suicide on Zoloft, right? So anyway, very reluctant and very just sort of hostile to the notion. But I went. I finally succumbed. A doctor that I went to said, I think you should go to a psychiatrist. I said, I thought that she was dumb. She said, well, <laughs> you, <laughs> she said, you can, you're the one that came to a doctor, right? I did not come to your house and start telling you what your problems were. You came to a doctor and described your problems. Now I'm telling you what I think. And if you think I'm dumb, why are you here? And I was like, touche. And she said, I think you should go to a psychiatrist. And I said, you know what? Okay. I'm running for Seattle city council. I am trying to be a normal. I'm trying to enjoin the normal world. I will now go to a psychiatrist because it seems like this is what one does. If one is attempting to be on the path of normalcy. And I went to a psychiatrist. I thought he was a ding a ling, uh-huh. <laughs> but he said some interesting things. And so as a background, everyone for years has been saying that I had some kind of bipolar disorder, mild to medium bipolar, not extreme bipolar, which is a legitimate like mental illness. And you see people do very destructive things, but a sort of mild bipolar or medium version of it where I make, um, I make very risky decisions Mm -hmm. sometimes, and Mm -hmm. then I am incapacitated other times. And so I've always brushed that off as kind of like, yeah, sure. I'm bipolar. Everybody's a little bipolar. People said, well, not really. I mean, you are more than a little bipolar. And I go, oh, you know, come on. They're like, I don't know. Every once in a while you walk across Europe. That's not really a normal response (laughs) to things. And I go, that seems true. I like, remember that time just recently when you bought an RV and drove it across uh, the West without really doing any kind of due diligence? I was like, wow, that just seems like fun, fun times. And then all those times that you forget to eat. Well, doesn't everybody forget to eat? Apparently, no. So this psychiatrist that I thought was a dingling said a couple of things that were interesting. He said, we don't know what bipolar is. We have no actual idea. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, that's, a, that's an admission that I admire. He I mean, said, if anything, that makes you kind of trust them a little bit it more. Does, it did. It did. And then he said, and when we try and treat bipolar, because we don't know really what it is, we don't really know how to treat it. So... Sometimes we get a solution which is accidental, 
where we give somebody a medicine for something else and it hap- and it happens to treat bipolar. He said what he said what I think you have is bipolar 2 which is not bipolar 1 which is this thing that you you recognize as bipolar where somebody goes to Las Vegas and gambles away their house. Oh right. Bipolar 2 is this thing where you do keep a lid on it but it still has a big effect on your life. And so he said what we discovered was that there is epilepsy medicine or or medicine that controls seizures mm-hmm. which also has an effect on bipolar. And I said isn't that something? You have my attention. He said, we don't know why. We don't know what it does. We don't know why. What do you think about that? And I was like, that seems like licking a South American frog. And he said, yeah, kind of. And I said, you know, I've always been curious about licking a South American frog, quite frankly. And he said, why don't you take this stuff, this anti-seizure medication called Lamotrigin? And I said, all right, I'll try it. Yeah, why not? I'm trying to be a normal guy. I'm trying to, you know, I'm open to this now. I believe that you have just told me that you don't know what you're doing. And I trust that so much more than if I had come in here and you said, oh, well, all we need to do is uh, inhibit your serotonin reuptake. And I would have just been like, no, yeah, no, thank you. Get out of town. You don't know what you're talking about. But this was just like, we're just throwing medicine at you and people report that it's better. Uh Uh-huh. So I started taking this Lamotrigin, which is a brand named Lamictal. Okay. And oh my God, it has had a tremendous effect. Um, and what I've been realizing lately is that I suffered from tremendous paranoia, acute paranoia that I was not even aware of because paranoia had been a constant friend and I understood it to be normal. This is the thing about mental illness. You think it is normal. Right. And I was incredible. In addition to suffering from massive depression and sometimes like truly reckless mania, I also had this, this bed of paranoia that has affected me my whole life. I just assume that people around me and, and particularly people close to me have omniscient knowledge and they are intentionally withholding affection or or action. They are intentionally denying me what I need for reasons that are unclear, but based on their omniscient knowledge, both of what I need and what and the and omniscient knowledge of like what they how they are playing into my narrative. And then they are trying to thwart me by behaving in these, you know, by, by not returning my phone call or by using particular wording in their email replies to me where I'm like, what, why are they fucking with me? Mm. And that was, that's been a constant companion. And I have torpedoed many of my closest relationships by just deciding like, well, that person's dead to me now because because they know mm. what they're doing. And taking this Lamotrigin, this was lifted enough that I saw it. Like, I didn't know you were here. Paranoia. And now, and now your absence is like this ringing bell. Mm. I looked around and I was like, why was I so mad at that guy? He didn't reply to a couple of emails four years ago. 
I must have been crazy. And then it's like, oh shit, I was crazy. And, and this simple epilepsy medicine, which no one knows why it has this effect. And, and what my, what my doctor, let's call him a doctor out of respect. The psychiatrist (laughs) doctor. Okay. What he said was, uh, if you don't have bipolar or seizures, right? This lamotrigine will have no effect on you. It's not like speed. It's not, it's not a mood alterer per se. It's not going to go in and, and monkey with you if you don't have this. He said, I don't have bipolar or, or seizures and I could eat this stuff by the handful. It does have a side effect sometimes where it causes all your skin to fall off. Right. Yeah, sure. But that only happens to one in a thousand people. So oh. if you're not one of those, I was like, curious that's curious that's sort of back to the south american frog thing Uh (laughs) but uh i don't appear to be one of the people that this their skin falls off and i do uh seem to be somebody that it has that it has a a a very noticeable and strong effect i feel better than i have in years Uh, i still think that it's all a shit show and that humans are just glorified uh pig bugs so it hasn't changed my overall philosophy. Right. But it's just taken away this. It's taken away the, the crushing feeling of defeat. And then these other things, these, it has silenced some of the voices that were, that were dominating that superego conversation and sort of constantly threatening my, well-being i'm really glad to hear this well i'm super glad that it's happening and what i'm terrified of so i so so as soon as he prescribed me this stuff i was like well i'm not going back to this psychiatrist again i've got this medicine now and it makes me fine and i don't want to go talk to this dingling about my problems All right, yeah and then i called him up and said i need you to give me another prescription for this because i'm running out and he said oh well you have to come back and talk to me I was like, oh, man. Uh-huh. That's how they get you, just like chiropractors. And what I'm worried about is I'm going to go back to see him. I'm going today. In fact, I have to leave now to go see him because this is the only because I'm leaving on a trip and I'm going to run out of these pills. Oh, you don't want to run out on the trip. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, I got to get these pills. Uh, and, it's, and it's not a thing. You know, the thing about the Lamotrigine is if you take one in the morning, at least in my experience, it's not like in the afternoon it wears off. It's not. It's not like taking a uh, trucker speed because uh-huh. I because <laughs> frankly I tried trucker speed and that didn't solve my problems either. All that makes you do is at three o'clock in the afternoon you want to take another one, mm. and then pretty soon you're taking two, and then you're taking four, and then you're taking eleven. No, this is just to take one in the morning and just there, but but now you just putter right along. So he wants to talk to me, and what I'm afraid of is I'm going to go in, and he's going to say, how's it going? And I'm going to say, well, great. I bought an RV and drove it to California, <laughs> and then I wrote a song and gave it to Amy Mann, and she recorded it for a new record, and then I just start, and then I bought some tickets to Maui, and yeah, and I gave $800 to a guy that asked me. Uh, things are going great. Uh-huh. And he's going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You sound like, you sound like this stuff is kind of making you a little bit manic. And I'm going to say, yes, yes, that is the greatest. I loved being manic. I, maybe I made some truly questionable and risky decisions when I was manic, 
But those were some of the best decisions of my life. I recorded four record albums in that state. I mean, I have to admit, I, I started running for city council in that state, which was a mistake. But every once in a while, you get a mistake. Well, it's not a mistake because you didn't win. Well, no. If I had won, it would, still would have been a mistake. Really? I, I would have been. I would have really enjoyed the actual business of of trying to run a city or trying to contribute to the running of a city. I would not have enjoyed at all all the rigmarole of being a politician. Um, and it, and that seems, that seems like so opposite of what I imagined mm. would be true. I always thought I would love the politicking and the challenge would be, how do you sit through those interminable meetings about like water treatment plants? But as I've gotten older, I realize I love that water treatment plant talk. I'll sit and talk about infrastructure all day and night. The problem is then you have to go to, you know, the cultural center and, and dance and eat some pie and, and, uh, listen to everybody yell at you about Bernie Sanders. And even though you have no effect on that, cause you're on a city council somewhere. And it's just like, I don't, I don't, I'm too much of an introvert for that. So, I, I mean, I drew, I was at city hall yesterday because I'm on the, on the music commission and we were having a big commission meeting at city hall and I walked in the door and I was like, wow, my office would have been in this building mm. if I had been on the city council and I would have been in these big commission meetings every single day. And as it stands, like I woke up at 1130 today and dragged my ass to, the, you know, put on a hat, went down to the commission meeting, said a bunch of things that were sort of off the agenda, mm -hmm. but that forced everybody to turn and nod their heads at me and go, well, that's also a case. And I was like, <laughs> you know what the music commission should do? We should buy an aircraft carrier and we should park it off the, off the coast of Seattle and have free rock concerts. And everybody's like, uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you for your contribution, John. <laughs> right. And then let's get back to the agenda, which is, you know, we need to buy uh, more paper clips for the office. Right, right. And I was like, here's a great idea. Why don't we implant a little speaker in every citizen's ear? Thank you, John, for your great contribution. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm afraid that I'm going to go to this guy's office today, and he's going to say, you are running a little hot. And I need to dial it back. And I, the thing is, none of us know how Lamotrigine works. So what does that mean? Does he, does he take 25% take of the medicine away? I don't want, I do not want my dose changed because I'm having a blast. So are you thinking you might go in and just sort of fudge things Maybe, a little bit? I don't know. The problem is, is I have a very hard time not telling the whole story because, again, I'm a little manic. So I, I want to go in and say, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. I joined a motorcycle gang because I'm, because I'm excited. Yeah. Right. And he's going to say, you joined a motorcycle gang. When I first met you two months ago, you laid on the couch and told me all humans were shit and that you deserved unenjoyment. And I'm going to say, well, yeah, sure. I mean, sure. That seems normal too. But have you ever really ridden with a motorcycle gang? It's quite amazing. So I don't know. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to go there you now. You trust him though, right? I'm I mean, you, do, sure. do you do you trust him to know that if you come back and tell him all this stuff, that that he's going to be able to say, well, you know what, 
we do need to dial it back. And, and just like you weren't sure that you needed it at all, you might not be sure that we need to dial it back, but actually we need to dial it back. I'm not sure if I trust him. I mean, uh, or maybe, you know, maybe he's going to want to give you more. Maybe you don't have enough. Whoa. Hello. You know, didn't occur to me. The thing is that this stuff isn't speed, right? It's not like take, take a little away, give a little more and you go up or down. It's some magic thing. And maybe bipolar is some small, uh, form of epilepsy that, that just is happening all the time that doesn't register. Mm. I don't know what it is. He doesn't know what it is. So what's he going to do? Change the medicine? I don't know. I mean, he says they are they they say that they are on my side, but they are like everybody on their side, right? Or they're on a general side, which is not probably specifically for me and my benefit. It's for the it's you know they they have a career, yeah, right? They're you don't want like a Michael Jackson doctor who's just going to give you oh you know stuff until you and and and. and until you can't think anymore. What I'm interested in finding out from him is, is this current state, is your experience with Lamotrigin that once somebody has a positive uh, response, is that then maintainable? Or am I on some like weird five month long mania that's going to like the other shoe is going to fall. All right. If this is my new reality i feel like i'm 19 again i mean i used to make really terrible decisions i have enough of a control on it now that i mean my mom did say to me the other day do not buy another fucking vintage car right now you are i can see it in your eyes you're going to come home with a 1967 cadillac one of these days and that's going to be a bridge too far you've got an rv in redding california you've got a gmc vintage suburban here if you come home with a Cadillac, I'm going to call the police because you're out of control. And so I'm like, you know what, mom? I was looking at Cadillacs. And so point taken. 